James, pulling no punches, speaking very vividly, that the tongue must be tamed. The tongue must be tamed. Just ask Justine Sacco. One irresponsibly worded, ill-timed tweet. Twelve words nearly destroyed her life. Justine Sacco was a communications executive for a communications company, IAC. And as she was boarding a plane for, headed to South Africa from New York City, she sent out an ignorant, acidic tweet to her 170 followers, and the tweet dripped with racism. Going to Africa, she tweeted, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. I don't even know what she meant. I mean, if you think about that, that's like a really weird statement. During her 11-hour flight to Cape Town, Twitter's tectonic plates <laughs> rumbled underneath her account. She tweeted that out to 170 of her followers, and by the time she landed, she was the worldwide trend on Twitter. All of this is happening with her little phone in airplane mode. She has no idea that she is the worldwide trend on Twitter. People are calling for her firing. Hundreds of people tweeting and saying, this woman needs to be fired. They're contacting the company. The company is saying she's not available for response. She is on an internet. We can't talk to her. She's on an international flight. And as the flight continued, drama built. What was going to happen to Justine Sacco when her plane landed? People showed up at the airport to take pictures. IAC fired Sacco. Social media mobs piled on. She was unable to find employment for a long time, and she nearly had a nervous breakdown. One tweet, 12 words, and a life filled with shame and misery. The tongue must be tamed. The tongue must be tamed. James 3, verses 1 through 12. This passage contains the single most sustained discussion in the New Testament on the tongue. And I should say that this sermon that I'm going to preach is 
heavily influenced by an essay I read by Sinclair Ferguson, whom I consider to be one of the greatest Bible teachers alive. James, we haven't, I don't know that we've, we perhaps have preached some sermons from James. We've never preached through the book of James. So a little background on James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. That makes for an interesting It helps us to understand the context. And it's clear that James, when you read his letter, that he is steeped in the wisdom wisdom literature of the Old Testament. He's obviously spent a lot of time in the Proverbs. In fact, many people consider James the New Testament version of the Proverbs. So he's, he's steeped in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. He also is clearly steeped in the teachings of his brother and Savior, Jesus. And much of what he says, just like I read this morning, is a penetrating study of how sin has stained our speech. A penetrating study of how sin has troubled our talk. Did you feel it when we were reading it? Don't these words shake you up a little bit? They're supposed to shake us up. And this, friends, is a very practical follow-up to the sermon from last week where we heard Jesus say that out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. This is a a very practical follow-up. James has one broad focus in this letter. So his, his broad focus in writing this letter is to bring Christian believers to spiritual maturity. That's his intent. That's his broad focus. That's his broad intent is to bring spiritual to bring Christians to spiritual maturity. That's the intent of every, that's, that's what the Bible wants to do in our lives. Every time we read the Bible, it's to bring us to spiritual maturity. That's always should be the intent of the preacher. That, that's my intent. I want to teach you this morning. I want you to understand God's word. I want you to, to be able to apply it to your lives by the help of the Spirit. So what? So to do what? So that you and I might become spiritually mature. That's, that's his aim. And in the first chapter, he spoke about how spiritual maturity is developed through suffering. So he, t- he, talks, he talks about the suffering that they're enduring as Christians, and he talks about how God's going to use suffering to bring spiritual maturity. And then in the second chapter, he talks about spiritual maturity and how that growth in godliness is connected to the word of God, reading the word of God and applying it to our lives. That's how someone becomes spiritually mature. And in this section, he speaks about how spiritual maturity is evidenced by our use of the tongue. This is all connected to spiritual maturity. Here's the the main point. Here's the the summary of this text, this section of Scripture, and of my sermon this morning. A strong marker of spiritual maturity is a tamed 
tongue. A strong marker of spiritual maturity is a tamed tongue. A strong marker of spiritual maturity is a tamed tongue. And if you're going to tame your tongue, then you need to understand its inherent nature. If you're going to tame your tongue, you need to understand some things about the tongue. Now, when I was little, I don't know if they do this anymore, but when I was little and went to the doctor, she, Dr. Buchanan, would, with her little tongue depressor in hand, remember those things? Tongue depressor. I don't know if they do this to kids. I don't remember them doing it with our kids. But you remember you walked into the doctor's office, and they would, she would say, open up your mouth, stick out your tongue. She laid that thing on it to get it out of the way, I guess. And say, ah. Open up and say, ah. Now, what was that all about anyway? What, 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 how much can you learn about someone's general health by saying, open up and say, ah, and looking into their mouth? Evidently, Dr. Buchanan was able to discover a lot about my general health by looking into my mouth. Just like Jesus said. By looking into your mouth, he could understand a lot about your spiritual health. And this is what James is teaching us. If you're going to tame your tongue, then you need to understand its inherent nature. So James about to do some serious tongue analysis. You didn't think you were going to get this at church, did you? A pathology report on the tongue. This is what he's giving us. Four traits of the tongue. I'm going to give you four traits of the tongue, and then we'll close the sermon with some gospel application. If you're going to tame your tongue, you need to understand it. So here's four traits of the tongue. The tongue is, number one, difficult. Now, what do I mean when I say the tongue is difficult? It's difficult to tame. Difficult to control a little thing. Who can tame it? Now, first, James gives this warning to those who are teachers. So that's applicable to me and, and anyone else, all the other pastors who teach. Just, that's scary, isn't it? But anyone who teaches, parents, are you teaching your children God's word? You should be. And if you are, you are a teacher. And so this applies to you. Teachers should be conscience, conscious of the weight and the influence of what they say because words are at the core of teaching, any teaching ministry. An unreliable tongue will lead to destruction and damage to those who are being taught. A teacher with an untamed tongue is undermining everything. But James, a teacher, clearly doesn't consider himself 
as having perfectly tamed his own tongue. It says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Have you stumbled in communion? Jairus was leading us through communion. I was aware of stumbling. I've stumbled. I've stumbled in the things that I did say. I've stumbled in the areas where I didn't say things I should have said. Have you stumbled? But James doesn't have like this holier-than-thou attitude. He's not presenting it as like you guys all have a problem with your tongue. I really dislike that in Christians. I don't like when Christians act like they're better than other people or they're better than one another. We sh- you shouldn't go to community group with kind of this holier-than-now attitude, like I got everything together. Because it's, 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 it's a misrepresentation of the gospel and your need for grace. We ought to be humble towards one another, right? I'm sure he remembers the ways in which he disrespected his brother Jesus. Perhaps he was there when his family was sent to collect him. Perhaps he was one of the ones who said, he's out of his mind. We all use our tongues. I told you last week, you use your tongues to the, at a clip of about 10,000 words today if you're on the lighter side of talking. If you're a real talker, you're using it at about 20,000 words a day. If a tame tongue is a strong marker of Christian maturity, then that's true for all Christians, not just teachers. The Lord's speaking to all of us from his word. The Holy Spirit is addressing all of us. He's addressing us through this series. He's addressing us through his word. He's addressing us through Matthew 12 last week. He's addressing us from James 3 this week. How we use our tongues provides clear evidence of where we are spiritually. How we use, so you want clear evidence of where you are spiritually? Then look at your use of your tongue. How we use our tongues provides clear evidence of where we are spiritually. Where are you at spiritually? Where are you at spiritually? James makes it real clear. The spiritually mature person is able to bridle his tongue. Which means then that spiritually mature person that can master the tongue, he says, can master the whole body. So if you want to know how spiritually mature you are, you're asking yourself the question, how am I doing at bridling my tongue? And if you are experiencing grace in bridling your tongue, then you are a spiritually mature person who is able to bridle your whole body and bring it under the control of Christ. I said last week, that this taming of the tongue has both negative and positive aspects. It's easy, and I think James is rightly focusing on some of the dangers of the tongue, and we're going to talk about those, but this has both negative and positive aspects, right? We, we should be examining the, the, that the spiritually mature person has this 
ability to restrain their tongue in, in, and, and keeping it from saying hurtful words that tear down others. That's, that's one aspect of an ability to bridle the tongue. But the other one, the other one is that positive aspect. It's that, it's that we're able to, to discipline our bodies, discipline our minds, discipline our tongues to actually say the things that should be said when they need to be said. So there's this negative aspect of controlling and restraining the tongue, but there's this positive aspect of, of the, the gospel so transforming us that we're disciplined in how we use our tongue and we harness the power of the tongue to say words that have an encouraging effect, a building up effect, a supporting effect, a comforting effect, a consoling effect. James has already said in chapter 1, if someone professes to be a Christian and fails to bridle the tongue, they're deceived. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, their religion is... How do you think he's, what do you think he's going to say? If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, their religion is worthless worthless. Taming the tongue is difficult. That's why James says no human being can do it except for one. One human being was able to control his tongue and that man is Jesus. Our only hope as we make effort to tame our tongue is that we are Christ's. You will make no effort in taming. Well, you might make some effort in taming your tongue apart from Christ, but ultimately it won't make an everlasting impact until you are in Christ. And because of his grace at work in us, in those who have put their faith in Christ, he's making you increasingly like him. Amen? Aren't you glad? You, you may not be where you want to be, but if Christ is at work in you, you weren't where you are before. You're growing. You're becoming increasingly like Christ. At least you should be if you're in Christ. That's what the gospel does to us. Our only hope, church, our only hope, we've got to get this straight, our only hope for spiritual maturity, our only hope for taming the tongue, is that we're Christ's. Is that his, his grace is at work in us. The grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you and the grace that's going to help you to tame this little thing called the tongue. And it's a battle, isn't it? We got to fight it daily, hourly. Always, are you fighting to tame your tongue? Four traits of the tongue. The tongue is difficult, difficult to tame. The tongue is also dominant. So it's difficult and it's dominant. What I mean to capture here by saying that the tongue is dominant is I'm trying to speak about its power. 
The tongue is this little small organ. Some would say the strongest muscle. It's actually a muscle. The strongest muscle in your body, but it's very small. It has this disproportionate power. And that's what James, James is saying. Tiny tongue, massive impact. Tiny tongue, massive impact. And he gives two vivid illustrations right here in the Word. He uses it. He describes it as a bit in a horse's mouth. He describes it as a rudder on a great ship. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time around horses. Not a lot. I've, I've spent a little bit. Enough, I've spent enough time around them to be scared of their power. You take a kick from the hind leg of a horse, and it'll send you deep into next week. Horses, we, we observe horses from the other side of the fence. But when you climb into the pasture with a horse, and, and you'll just start to realize how powerful they are. In James' time, the power of your army was measured by how many men you had on horseback. You know, most people... The, 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 the preferred, or maybe not preferred, the preferred mode of transportation was to have a horse. But most people's common form of transportation was, guess what? You know, if somebody pulls up on a horse, when you're walking to the store, you're doing your 10-mile walk, they pull up on a horse, and it's like jealousy. You know, like, they, they're so much faster than me. Anybody that had a horse had more money. If you had a horse, that's like having a Porsche. Way more horsepower, if you know what I'm saying. What's James' point? This is his point. The extraordinary power and influence over a horse is one tiny little piece of metal you can control and harness the energy of a horse with one little bit. Same with your tongue. Rudder of a boat. Ships in the ancient world were big. We know from Acts that the ship Paul was sailing into Rome, Luke tells us, held 276 people on it. That's a lot of people. It's not a, sail, it's not a little sailboat. It's not a little sunfish over at Marsh Creek. That's a big boat. And what James is saying is that large ship is directed simply by turning a little rudder. Just turn it a little bit and you veer off. Same with the tongue. It's small, but it's got power. Power for evil, power for good. That's all disproportionate to its size. I read this quote from Bruce Walkie. This one hit. A fool's tongue is long enough to cut his own throat. That's a proverb for you. He's capturing that the tongue has power. It's dominant. Why does James speak this way? 
Why is James speaking this way? To shake us up. Because we've gotten so used to just talking and spouting things out of our mouth. And the culture and the air we breathe stinks, but we've gotten so used to it that we don't even notice when we act and talk in the exact same way that the culture talks, a culture that is lost and opposed to Christ. But we don't notice it. It's like a person with bad breath. Everybody else notice it but them. We've gotten used to our polluted talk. And James is saying, don't get used to it. Don't get used to this. He wants to shake us up. But he also wants us to see that there's so much power in the little tongue for good. I want you guys to see this. I want you to see there's so much power in the little tongue for good. Last week I mentioned an exercise. Just going around the table, getting out some post-it notes, and seeking to share one admirable quality you see in others, and then just sharing them. We did it at our family dinner last Sunday. 25 minutes we probably took. Not a dry eye at the table. Powerful time of encouragement. 25 minutes. That's all it took. I'm so glad that we as a family did that. We should do that more and more. The tongue may be small, but it's got incredible dominant power. Third trait, it's destructive. It's destructive. I'm going to zip through some of these because it's right here in the scripture. I'm just going to name out what, call out what Paul calls, or what James calls out. Talking about traits of the tongue, difficult to tame, dominant power. It also has destructive power. Did you see the destruction that it can cause? Series of vivid pictures. It's a fire. Small spark can destroy a whole forest. Same with the tongue. Sharp word, hateful comment, hurtful word can destroy a person's life. Set on fire by hell. The word he uses there is Gehenna. It was the city dump outside Jerusalem. Constant fire burning continually all the time. Fire burning to get rid of all the trash. Gehenna. The tongue is set on fire by the fires of Gehenna, the fire of hell. Hurtful words, friends, are satanic. It's a world of unrighteousness and filth. It's a whole world of darkness. It's a stain. He says it's set among our members, staining the whole body. A small stain on your clothing can ruin the whole vibe. Right? Like you're getting dressed up. And then you eat that spaghetti dinner and then you stand up at the wedding and you realize you got a couple drops like on your shirt or on your pants. It doesn't matter how good you look. You got everything right. You look great. But everybody sees the spaghetti stain. It ruins the whole look. If you haven't tamed your tongue, you have a stain and it's ruining the whole thing. It's destructive. It's a restless evil. An untamed tongue is a wild thing quick to defend itself, always attacking others, always protecting self, always putting others down. 
a restless evil. Satan's described as a restless evil. Peter describes him as a roaring lion prowling around restlessly looking for someone to destroy. That's the tongue. That's what an untamed tongue is. And then he says it's a deadly poison. Romans 3, the venom of snakes is under their lips. It's a description of humanity. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Poison, venom, snakes. It's meant to remind you of someone in the Bible. One of the main characters at the beginning. The serpent, Genesis 3. The deadly deceit of the serpent with all of its deadly poison and all of its deadly consequences has come to us. Now, obviously, this is naturally true of the unbelieving person because, you, because Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have a bad heart, if you don't have a heart that hasn't been changed by Christ, you can't possibly use words in the constructive way that they were meant to be used. So, so this is clearly true of the unbeliever. But James is writing to believers. So here's the tragedy that concerns James. And the tragedy is that these same destructive powers of the tongue, of the flesh, would be present among the church among believers, among the gospel community. Do you hear me, church? This should not be so. This description of how the tongue is corrupted by sin and polluted by sin and then used in destructive ways should not be true of the gospel community, those that have been changed by the power and the grace of God. Now, now I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned for us as a church, and I'm concerned for Christians, especially in our area and in our country. Because I see people that identify themselves as Christians using words in destructive ways, tearing people down, destroying reputations, belittling people that, is, that are a brother or sister in Christ whom they are going to spend all of eternity with. You don't even like them. But they are your brothers, sisters. They're in the family of God. And James thinks it's a tragedy if we would use our tongues to speak against the family like the world speaks. Robert Murray McShane I love his example. He resolved that when a fellow Christian was named in his company, so if he was standing in a group and someone else named somebody that was identified as a Christian, he would sit and think, can I say anything good about this person at all? And then he would resolve, 
I can't think of one good thing to say. If he couldn't think of anything good to say, I ain't going to say nothing. I'm going to be silent on the matter. That's a good resolution, church. One that we ought to embrace. Okay, fourth one. Let's move to our fourth trait. It's duplicitous. It's duplicitous. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's what he's saying here, that with, with the same tongue, we come in and worship God on Sunday morning, and then we go home and curse people. That's a forked tongue. James is saying it ought not be. James is saying that that's a contradiction of the damning kind. Created in the image of God to worship and bless God. And it's hypocrisy at the highest level to worship God with our tongue and then tear people down with the same tongue. He's exposing a horrible weakness. How many contradictions have come from us this week, church? How many contradictions? Lord, have mercy on us. Listen, James was speaking penetrating, convicting words to professing Christians who were suffering serious persecution. They, they were suffering in their private lives because of a world that had become increasingly inhospitable to followers of Jesus. That was his audience. And I wonder how the words of James should hit us. How much more devastating are these words when addressed to, and I include myself in this category, soft, pampered, wimpy Christians. These are the traits of the tongue. This is where James ends. And I wanted to ask James. I did a couple times in my study. James, help me here. <laughs> Is there any hope? What am I supposed to do here? Is there any application? Let's make some gospel application. Where's the help? The help comes to us through the gospel, which is all through the letter of James. James knows the gospel. He knows that people are saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But let's do two things. The first is this. If you're feeling convicted right now about the ways in which you've used words, which that's, it's, this is what the passage was intended to do. If you're sitting here reading that text and saying, whew, man, I'm good. I got no troubles at all. Just talk to the person next to you. <laughs> and and they'll, if they're honest, they'll tell you, no, 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 you do have some things to work on. 
But here's what happens sometimes when, the, when, when conviction comes upon the church, and this is what happens to me. Sometimes, if you've ever been reading your Bible, sitting in church, and conviction comes upon you, there's like this immediate reaction. And you know what it is? I want to run away from this. I want to get away from this. I can't stand things. I don't like the mirror being shown to me in that way. I thought I looked pretty good. And so conviction comes and we run away from it. We want to run away from it. If conviction is coming to you, I'm entreating you. I'm telling you. I'm pleading with you. Don't run away from it. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. If you're convicted right now of how you've been using your tongue and speaking in ways that you'd be ashamed of if we put it on the screen, then run to Jesus. Run with tears in your eyes. You're seeing your need for grace. You're seeing, everybody should see their need for grace. What James is doing is he's dismantling all the layers of self-deceit that you layer on and walk around with. He's stripping it down to show you that you need a Savior. You need a Savior. We need a Savior. So if you're convicted this morning, that's actually good news. Because you can't fix yourself, but Jesus can fix you. So if there's conviction, don't run away from it. Run, run to Christ in repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ. Run to Him. Run to Him with tears. Run to Him with sorrow. Communicate to Him your sorrows over your sin and seek His forgiveness in the gospel. It's as simple as that. We also need the Word. We need the Word. Let me ask the band to return. I, I just, I don't want to uh, jump over this real quickly. I just want to make a comment, though. The work of the Word begins the Christian life. The work of the Word sustains the Christian life. If you want to grow in maturity, you have to have God's Word. God's Word is shaping us, influencing us, changing us, sanctifying us. I noticed in the cart at home, the Amazon cart at home, that someone had ordered a tongue scraper. I've never used one. I think the purpose of it is to scrape unpleasant nastiness from the tongue. To clean the tongue. To transform your breath. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is like a scraper for your soul. It's like a, it's a, it's like a tongue scraper. You read the Word of God, and it scrapes off some of the nastiness. And if, you, if you're in Christ and you're reading the Word of God, the Word of God, by the, by the work of the Spirit, is shaping you and forming you and changing you more and more into the image of Jesus. So get up in the morning, feed yourself on the Word of God, and watch the Holy Spirit tame your tongue. Amen? I got a, a, a note this week from Amy, one of the partners here at the church, and she just said, spending time in God's Word. She said, this was my takeaway from last week. She gave me a couple. She said, this is one of them. Spending time in God's Word can change my words by changing my heart. She gets it. She needs a heart change, which is going to influence word change, and that all happens because she's in the Word. So she says, I just keep reading Jesus' words over and over again. I love that. That's the best thing a preacher could ever be told. 
Not, I listened to your sermon over and over again. No, I read the word of God that you read. I keep reading it over and over and over and over again. And that's going to change. If I truly want my words you wrote to reflect a loving, humble heart, then I need to be transformed by the word of God. Be like that. Let me conclude this sermon. You guys know, most of you know that Amy, my wife, speaks Spanish. We've traveled to many Spanish-speaking countries, and we noticed something every time. It happened, we were, in, we were down in the city of Philadelphia last week. I went up to order some tacos, and I tried to use what little Spanish I, I know, and the lady laughed at me. She detected my accent right through and through. But Amy came up, and I, and I was really waiting for this, but Amy came up and ordered, and she asked what, what, what her ethnicity was, where she had come from. Because every time she speaks Spanish, no one can detect any other accent. They think that she's a native speaker. They can't detect her English accent. They look at me, they listen to me, and they detect it right away. (laughs) But she's worked hard at that. She's practiced, practiced, practiced Spanish. She's rehearsed, 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 so that now she actually sounds Spanish. Here's my hope for me, for us, that given what we've learned about the tongue today, that we would run to Jesus to help us, that we would rehearse, rehearse, rehearse the gospel, that we would practice, 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 practice the gospel so that people would one day say, you sound like Jesus. I can't detect your old accent. Because you sound like Jesus. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. Sounding more and more like Jesus. Talking with the accent of heaven. A strong marker of spiritual maturity is a tamed tongue. Amen. Let's worship him.